We are continuing our study of the Psalms. If you want to turn in your Bible, you see there Psalm chapter 40. We are going to look at, as time permits, um, six or seven of the Psalms. You'll notice that the title I have of the first Psalm is You Find What You Look For. Um, And in group dynamics, this is always the case, but have you ever known somebody that, you know how we, we, talk, we talk about four-year talk, uh, the things that we say, how are you doing? What's the answer? Fine? Okay, good. So you have to keep it going. What do you say? Okay. How are you? And then you say? Fine. And then what do you say? Good. All right. Have a good day. You too. All right? Yeah. Well, they can't st- stand up or they're, they're going through so much. Now, that's, that's one end, and, and obviously, why do we do that? Habit. Habit. Um, too takes too much time, right, to, to unwind all of that. Have you ever known somebody who doesn't play the game right? Yeah. How are you doing? Terrible. <laughs> you know, this, that, that, and this, and so forth. Um, so maybe that's why we, we play the four-year uh, talk game. And we don't say, but, and, and of course, maybe it's a matter of it's not the right time. It's not the right environment. It's not the right place. That's a conversation that's better had in a, a one-on-one setting. But do you, have you ever known somebody that no matter what the setting is, they're ready to just unwind all the, the woes and the problems that they have? Is it, a, is it a fair thing to say that some people have more burdens than others? I want you to think about some people that you know that have had an extraordinary amount of trouble in their lives. Have you known some having that as a background who still are able to maintain a positive spirit? Have you ever known somebody who's perpetually in that negative complaining and whining mood who really, if an objective observer were to look in on it, would say, it's not really all that bad. Um, When you think about the subject of contentment versus complaining, in the Bible, who comes front of mind? All right, Job. So how did Job handle the difficulties that came into his life? He hung in there. You remember after, at the end of Job chapter 1, when difficulty after difficulty happens to him, he loses all of his possessions, he loses uh, all of his children, Uh, he's besieged by raiders, by natural disaster, and at the end of all of that, what does he say? All right, and then how does he finish that? He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will return. The Lord did what? The Lord gave, and the Lord takes away, and then what's the last line? Blessed be the name of the Lord. All right, so we're going to cut him some slack, given all that he goes through. He really doesn't complain until his friends start unfairly accusing him. All right, so we would say Job is a positive example of how to cope with the difficulties in your life. He was frank, he was honest about it, but he uh, wasn't a fountain of complaints. But if you want to look at a negative example in scriptures, clear cut, nobody compares. Who does the Bible give us as the how not to in the complaint department? In fact, it was so bad, God kills tens of thousands because of their complaining. The Israelites. 
In fact, the Apostle Paul, and he, he gives a, a laundry list of the sins of that, that particular... And it wasn't just Israel as a whole. Do you remember who it was specifically among the Israelites that caused God to react so, so strongly? Where were they and what was their circumstance? All right, it's the, it's the generation that are in the wilderness. Moses has tasked them with 12, the, the 12 leaders, the cream of the crop, to go into the land of Canaan, spy it out, come back. They give the negative report, and as a result of this, God punishes them. In 40 years, they're going to wander, and as the result of this, they're going to, um, uh, those over the age of 20 are going to lose their lives in the wilderness, and they lose it for different reasons. The Apostle Paul says, among his, uh, they did this, and look what happened to them. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, he says, Do not grumble as they grumbled and were destroyed of the destroyer. We've got to find the balance, don't we, of being honest with other people, of being real, of being transparent, of not always trying to put on a face, as uh, the preacher said, that uh, we're lying to, to others. When we need to reach out for help and not be so proud that we can't ask others when we're struggling and, and we, or, or we need somebody to talk to. You know, this weekend at the family retreat, we talked about the family aspect. We talked about fellowship and we talked about faith. And in all of that, the importance of building relationships, of being able to, to, to be transparent with one another. Now, so how, how can we do that without becoming chronic grumblers and complainers? What's going to keep us from being so focused on our problems? Because what happens in our lives when we know that when we ask somebody, how are you doing, we know that they're going to spew, what do you do with a person like that? If you're not, I mean, just human nature, you avoid them. Because we really, um, we don't want to surround ourselves perpetually with that. And you know, have you ever talked to somebody and said, how are you doing? Uh, um, you know, I'm... I'm and I've heard it different ways, and it's not a phrase I put into my uh, vocabulary, but uh, nobody listened to me if I complain, you know, and they kind of joke that off. And, and I like that. That's a, maybe a good way to handle that. It's, it's saying I'm still struggling, but isn't everybody? Or, you know, everybody's got their own, own problems. Now, I say that in the light of Psalm chapter 40, because no matter how heavy your burdens are, we, we choose the outcome so as you think about Psalm chapter 40, I want to read through it real quick, and I want you to see David's attitude in Psalm chapter 40. He said, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust. And has not turned to the proud, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Sacrifice and meal offerings you've not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. Then I said, Behold, I come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your laws within my heart. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness, your truth in the great con from the great congregation. You, Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and truth will continually preserve me. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. 
My iniquities have overtaken me so that I'm not able to see. They're more numerous than the hairs of my head, and my heart has failed me. Please Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored whose delight is my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha, let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified since I am afflicted and needy. Let the Lord uh, be mindful of me. You're my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. All right, who writes this psalm? David. So what can you tell me about the circumstances that happen in David's life? In the context of what we're talking about, of good times and bad times. Okay? We talked about that last week. We're going to see that again later in this class um, where he's on the run. Uh, he's on the run on multiple occasions, right? We mentioned that last week on the run from Saul before he is officially coordinated as king of Israel. Uh, when Saul is jealous of him... After his sin with Bathsheba, there's the uh, circumstances of Absalom, his son, who tries to take the throne away from him. Any other things that David might have had cause to complain about? Okay, and actually, let's look at that even more closely. He's going to lose that son, Absalom. Um, do you remember when Nathan comes to him and uh, he says, uh, David is, he, he gives that uh, parable to him that's really about David. And David's response to that is, is, is what? About this fictitious man who's rich and he doesn't take any of his sheep. He takes the poor man's one ewe lamb that was like a daughter to him that he nestled in his chest. David says he ought to be killed. And he ought to restore it fourfold. Well, does David die? Does David pay? Absolutely. In fact, when you start looking at it, what about the child that Bathsheba's carrying? What happens? Dies. Do you remember Amnon? Amnon, who's in love with his half-sister Tamar? What does is, what is Amnon, through the counsel of a, a, a poor influence, what does Amnon do to Tamar? Rapes her. All right, so let's, before we get beyond that, David has his, his daughter raped by his son. That had to be devastating. What happens to Amnon? Absalom kills Amnon. All right, and then we know what happens to Absalom. At the end of David's life, do you remember a son named Abijah? Abijah thinks that he should be the guy on the throne. And who does God want on the throne? Solomon. Solomon says, if you'll stay within these parameters, you're going to be okay. Does Abijah stay within them? No. Abijah dies. David sees that death too. Fourfold. Does David have reason to complain? If you were to see David in the temple and you, or the tabernacle as it was in his lifetime, and you were to shake his hand and say, hey, David, how are you doing? What could David say? That's terrible. Especially in his life. I've lost four children. I had chaos in my home. Really, if you think about it, as great as David was, a man after God's own heart, nobody had more familial turmoil than David did. And really, David wasn't the greatest of fathers. He contributed to a lot of that. Look at the way he handled Absalom. He, really, a how not to into dealing with the transgressions of your son. But how does David speak here in Psalm chapter 40? 
Would you classify David's inspired words as a bright outlook or a negative outlook? Let, let me see if we can't break this down just a little bit. And I think I put this here. And I knew you couldn't see that. I'm sorry. Well, you can see it better there than I can see it. But he, he says, God notices me, verse 1. God hears me or listens to me, verse 1. God lifts me, verse 2. God improves me, verse 3. God blesses me, verse 4. God impresses me, verse 5. God expects more of me. He, he sees me as better or more than I can see myself. By the way, you might want to mark this out if you don't have a cross-reference in your Bible. This is a, a messianic prophecy. The Hebrews writer is going to apply this to Jesus to speak of sacrifices and offerings you would not, but a body you have prepared me. And he goes on to say, by the which will we are sanctified by the offering of the body of Christ once for all. So how did you make things right under the old law? How did you make atonement? Animal sacrifice. What does the Hebrews writer say is accomplished by Christ? His body, he was given a body which was sacrificed once for all, and that satisfies God's justice forever. All right, But in the context of David's life, David says, you expect more of me. You see me for more than I am. Thank you, Harold. Uh, if you haven't gotten a, a, a worksheet today and you want one, uh, we're just getting started. Just raise your hand, and, and Harold will bring one to you. Um, number, uh, verse 9 and 10, God needs me. Verse 11, God helps me. Verse 12 and 13, God rescues me. Verse 14 through 16, God protects me. And then verse 17, God gives me what I need. Now, he does point out some of the things that are going wrong in his life. But the thing he seems to point out more than anything is his own sin problem. And how, if God gave him what he deserved, how difficult life would be for him. So even when he looks at the negatives in his life, he says, sometimes I bring it on myself, and with that kind of perspective, I can become what God wants me to be. All right? So we get to choose. You know, gratitude is is the sign of contentment. Uh, And uh, our outlook is so much more brightened. Our ability to cope with the troubles of our life are managed so much better when we can see God's power and God's presence in our life through whatever we're going through. Um, I think all of you, given the exercise that we started this class with, you can look back and you can see people who you know have been riddled with trouble and who have been devastated by disaster, and yet they are able to keep a bright outlook on life. Um, One other thing I would point to, I don't know, we all come from different contexts and backgrounds. I was... I spent 13 years um, with a congregation that had a school of preaching. And sometimes you'd have, um, you're you're digging deeper into the text. And and I I heard one instructor one time, great man, I I just disagree with him. He he pointed out a tendency, he said, that showed maybe a vain repetition uh, in a a prayer life. You know, a good brother, and we've got to be very careful about our analyzing, critiquing a brother uh, who's leading us in worship. Um, we might miss the point. We may not be fully informed on how Scripture approaches things. But maybe you've known a brother who gets up and he prays and he says, Oh, Lord, we thank you, Lord. Lord, for this, Lord, we thank you, God, you, Lord. Oh, Lord, thank you, thank you, Lord. And they'll do that over and over again. Well, this good brother said, uh, spoke of how repetitious and vain uh, that that be how, you know, do you say 
Roger, how are you today? Roger, Roger, how's your wife? Roger, Roger, are you doing? How, how about your kids? Roger, Roger, how's? Hey, hey, and Roger, and Roger, and you, you see, I get that. We need to be very careful. Look at Psalm chapter 40. This is a prayer that's being prayed, and I want you to notice what the psalmist does as we go through there. Um, in verse 5 through 17 alone, verse 5, O Lord my God. Verse 8, O God. Verse 9, O Lord. Verse 11, O Lord. Verse 13, O Lord, O Lord. Verse 17, O my God. Maybe it's not vain repetition or thoughtlessness. Maybe it's intensity of feeling that causes us to pour out our hearts in deep emotion to the God that we depend on and we rely on to help us through whatever we're struggling with. I think at least we ought to give that brother the benefit of that doubt. Don't you? Yes, sir. That's good. There's a difference between repeating ourselves in prayer and mindlessly, without heart directed and engaged to God, saying something formulaic that reflects no depth of relationship or feeling toward God. Yeah. John 21, 15 to 17. That's right. And, and so in, in prayer, um, what God's focused on is the, uh, certainly um, we shouldn't pray that which we know is against his will. We shouldn't pray without a submission to his, his will. But if we're repeating ourselves, look at Jesus. He's about to, to take on the sin of the world. Uh, certainly that's what's on his mind. Um, and as we develop our relationship with God, I think that's certainly going to be a characteristic of that because we need him constantly. All right, just a few thoughts. Psalm 40, any, any other comments? All right, let's flip over a page to Psalm chapter 42. Uh, you might make this note in uh, your Bible. It may be noted for you. In the Hebrew Bible, Psalm 42 and 43 are actually one psalm. So they have one fewer psalms uh, than we do. You might notice, um, do any of you have a notation over Psalm 42 that's kind of unusual? Book two. So you remember, I think it was our first class, we said that the Psalm book of Israel, the book of Psalms, actually is five books put together. Um, it's broken into five sections. We, um, we're, we've got five, four classes left. We've left book one, now we're into book, chapter, uh, book two of the book of Psalms. Um, and it, it really is set up, Psalm 42 and 43, it does look like they go together because you have uh, questions that, are, that is asked perhaps by the choir director and then answers that are given by the congregation. Um, and you can break down that psalm. Um, uh, uh, there's what, let's see, there's 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. And so you have three verses from the, uh, the uh, choir director an answer given in the fourth verse, and then it goes through those four refrains. But I'm just going to look at Psalm chapter 42. Um, it's familiar to us. I uh, call this soul support. Um, there are some connections here to some of the songs we sing. As you look, uh, somebody, Jeremy, you're a nice loud reader. Can you read Psalm 42 for us? All right, so over the, the course of those 11 verses, we might lose sight of this a little bit. But if you were to try to describe in a few words the tone of the psalm, what words might, might you use? I said, if you could just kind of describe the tone of this psalm in just a few words, what words would you use? 
Distressed? I think that's a, that's a good one. Would you add anything to that? Okay. Um, he's distressed. It's full of request, petition. Any other words? And, and I ask that because maybe if we kind of break this down and look at it, we might go back and read through that psalm a little differently. Jeremy did a fantastic job. But there are some emphases or emphases in this psalm. All right. So there's this intensity that's tied to a hope that he feels. He's hopeful. Is there? Is he also hurting? And he's also just, he's intense. So when you, when you come to this psalm, and the same is true, by the way, of Psalm chapter 43, there's this intensity, there's this hope, there's this hurt, there's this petition-filled approach to God that, that formulates this. And there's questions. You'll notice how many questions there are here. He asks questions. He shares the questions that his enemies ask. And then there's his own questions that he has. And who's the answer for all of them? God is. So I want you to see that and and just kind of break this down really quick. And we could spend more time on all of these. Is I want us to notice, first of all, the struggle that he has as we look at this psalm. And and the struggle is um, more than one front. The first struggle is is the longing in verse 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Does that challenge you? In the place where nobody else can see. Does that describe the relationship that you currently have? With God. God, I long so much to come into your presence. It is like a deer that pants for the water. Now, I don't get to see that up close. They, we have, we have uh, several deer that are bedded down just on the other side of the property uh, from us. Um, but I've gotten, uh, we, there's two animals I deal with on a daily basis that drink a lot of water. Um, if any of you have hens, uh, we, we've, the, Hens are, are, are dumb, and I say that with love, but they, there's so many things they do that are contrary to good common sense. Um, and, you know, trying to find the right waterer that they won't just knock down. So if y'all know a good one, let me know what that is. Um, and so sometimes I have to put the water out outside of the coop so that it won't be all soggy in there the next morning because they'll stand on it. And then one bird, and for one moment, is going to get up there and get one drink, and it's going to ruin it for the other seven. Right? Because he'll knock it over. You ever seen uh, hens that hadn't had water in, in about 8 to 12 hours? They're frantic, especially in the summertime, they're frantic. They need, you need, they need water. Um, and I, mentioned, I try not to over-mention it, but, you know, we have a cow now. And I have never seen a creature drink as much water as that cow does. And, and she'll let me know when she's done. I have a big tub inside the barn, and she'll knock it over. Uh, which is my indication to go and fill it up. So, you know, that's how the, that relationship works. We know, you know what it's like to be thirsty, don't you? Have you ever had uh, maybe a surgery? And as the result of that surgery, you, they reintroduce what your stomach can take. Certainly not food. The first thing you get is water. And maybe if you can recall a time when you had to go just two days without water. And the first time, what do they, what do, they do normally? Ice chips 
Or I, I remember like some kind of sponge-like thing there where you just sponge your, 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 your mouth just a little bit. And, I mean, it's amazing how great that is. David is inspired by God to write an analogy to help us to see how our relationship, how the drive for closeness to God should look. And he uses this. It's like thirst. It's like a thirst that you can't quench. It's like a desire that's so intense that you're saying, almost as if you're pulling out your hair, when can I come and appear before you? It's, it's Saturday night. It's been three days since I've been with your people. God, when do I get to come? Or perhaps you've been away from the assemblies, uh, not your choice at all, and it's been two or three weeks. And now finally you have the ability to go with the people of God into the presence of God for the worship of God. How does that make you feel? You've been absented, not because you wanted to, but you've had to be. And so David describes the struggle that he's feeling when he asks the question, when do I get to come before you? And then there's a struggle that's brought on by despair. Look at verse 3. My tears have been my food all day. As he's facing this persecution, where is your God? I remember these things, and I pour out my soul. I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with a voice of thanksgiving. Why are you in despair? Why have you become cast down? And he goes through in verse 6 and verse 11, and he repeats this. And then he's, uh, the struggle is because of his mourning. I will say, verse 9, to God my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. So you have a worshiper. He's in the presence of God, and he's struggling. I try to remember this in preaching that pew after pew, there are folks who maybe they lied. <laughs> We're going to be more charitable. Maybe they, huh? He just made his joke. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I, was, I was going along with the joke. Yeah. We, we've, we've held in our problems to ourselves, right? And yet we're, we're on the verge of falling apart. Life is upside down for us. And we're just trying to make it through. All of us are carrying around hidden hurts. If we were to go through the auditorium, you could talk of financial stress that you're under. You could talk about doctor's appointments you're going to go to and you don't even know the outcome of them. Or maybe a diagnosis you've already received and you're struggling to know what's next. Maybe you're in distress in a relationship right now. It could be with your spouse. could be with your children or your parents. Maybe you are so eaten up with a sin problem or sinful habit that you just feel like you're just almost beyond hope. And yet you've come in and you're going to worship God. Now I think, I think that's good for the preacher to keep in mind. That we might speak with compassion. It's also good for each of us to realize maybe when you pass somebody in the hallway in the NPR somewhere and you look at somebody and you go to say hi to them and they, they frown, it may not be personal. They may be so weighted down with the difficulties of their life, that's all they can do is to function. may not at all be about you. You know, I always think about Jehoram, that wicked king of Israel, when Samaria is being besieged, and he's walking along the outside of the wall, and there's the two uh, prostitutes who'd made a, the, a, a, a very harrowing 
bargain between each other. One was going to, each of them were going to kill their sons and, and eat them because of how terrible the famine was. One uh, had done that. The other had not. And so there's this, the, the, she calls out to the king who sh- she wants to arbitrate in this situation to say, you know, make her, make her keep her into the, the bargain. He's walking about in his royal robes. Y'all remember what happens, right? He pulls off the robes and what's underneath? Sackcloth. Itchy, scratchy, burlap-like material up against his skin. Nobody else could see that, but it was there the whole time. One wore sackcloth to declare their affliction of heart and of soul. I just want us to keep in mind that there are brothers and sisters all around us who are wearing sackcloth underneath. They may not be wicked like Jehoram. They may be good, godly, righteous people who are carrying this around all the time. All of us will struggle at our best. David says in Psalm 14, or Job rather, says in Job 14 and verse 1, man that's born of woman is a few days and full of troubles. Perhaps it will help us to be more compassionate and cut each other more slack. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, that we're to be tolerant with one another, forbearing with one another in love. I'm sure that so often we don't know what our brothers and sisters are going through. Here's David, a man who wants to be in the assemblies, a man who's hungry, and this is in reference to his going before God, and he's a man who is struggling with despair and with mourning. It's also, isn't it, a, a wise thing in, in God's plan that he has set it up so that our coming together stimulates us unto love and good deeds? You ever come to services and you feel like you were at the end of your rope and you were about ready to give up? And maybe you didn't even want to come to services that day. And as the result of your having come with others before the great I am, have you ever failed to feel better after it was all said and done? Isn't it incredible that God's designed worship that way? So we have the struggler, the struggle itself in this psalm. What's the solution? This is a good Bible class answer. Anybody can just call this one out. God's always the solution, right? Um, More specifically, it's panting for him, it's thirsting for him, hoping in him, it's remembering him, it's praising him. You might make this note if you're interested. God, the name God, is mentioned 14 times in this psalm. 14 in the 11 verses. And then Lord, one additional time. He is my God, twice. He's the God of my life, verse 8. He is God, my rock, verse 9. And the solution for his struggle included being able to go with those who go to the house of God. The soul needs the one who made it to make it whole. So we have the struggle, we have the solution, and then we have the support. All right, so the soul that's smart enough to reach up to God is going to be rewarded. Going to be rewarded with hope, verse 5, with remembering the blessings and the goodness of God, verse 4 and 6. It's going to be blessed with loving kindness, verse 8. It's going to have a song in the night, verse 8, and it's going to have help, verse 11. God gives us just what we need, and so we can call upon that truth every day. Not just on the days when we come to worship, but in our devotional life. All right. Thoughts on Psalm 42. There's there's a lot we leave on the cutting room floor there, but I I want to cover representatively all these psalms. Um, I call this next one, Psalm 47, a short list of reasons why God should be worshipped. Psalm chapter 47. If you'll turn over to that. 
All right, if somebody would read that for us, please. Psalm 47. Okay, so in a word, what's this psalm about? Okay, God's, God's rule. Praise. All right. Uh, and while certainly God's sovereignty is at play here, it seems like the heart of this is a call to do what? Worship. Worship. So I think this is neat as we go through this Psalms class, how, how many of these Psalms are perfect primers to help us in what we're going to do here in about half an hour. We're going to go into worship God in a little while. And, and here is kind of an encouragement for what should be going through our mind, how we should prepare our hearts as we go into that. So a short list of reasons why God should be worshipped. Now, before I give you my list, what, what do you think are, are the sons of Korah's reasons for worshipping God in this psalm? Why should God be worshipped as you read this psalm? Okay, so his, his actions. What else do you see in the psalm? Okay, so his, his power, um, his rulership, okay? So um, there is, and, and these are helpful reminders. Um, we live in very volatile times right now. When you think on the world stage about the, the power that's being wielded, maybe you think on the battlefield. Maybe you think Russia. Maybe you think about maybe the growing power in this world and, and how they're trying to get more and more power all the time. And I'm talking about particularly the communist uh, portion of, of the Chinese nation. Um, or, you know, maybe think about the U.S. and how we're still the bastion of freedom. We're the most powerful nation on earth. No matter how powerful or growing in power any nation is, God reigns over all of that. He's more powerful than all the nations combined could be. What else? Reasons for worshiping God from this psalm. Okay? All right, so his, his favor and his protection and so his blessings. All right, for sure. Anything else? Okay. So what do you take from that? He sees where we can't see. That's right. Right. You know, you think about that word providence. What word is nestled right in the middle of that word? Provide. So when I think of providence, when you think of providence, and we rightly define it, we talk about God working through time and events to accomplish his sovereign will, to do what he intends. And if our life is lived in submission to him, we can trust him that he's going to lead us through the, the circumstances of life, through the people that he brings into our life. He's, his power is evident through that. But don't forget the provide part. He's providing for us. And so to, to the point in verse 4, his providence is seen in what he gives. He gives an inheritance. He gives us an intimate relationship with him. So here, here's my list really quick. There's his greatness, verse 1 through 3. We see his power, which is already mentioned in verse 2 and 4, and his position. We see his giving in verse 4. We've already just talked about that. And then we see his glory. We worship God because of his glory. And that causes the praise that Doris talked about in verse 5 through 9. His glory is seen in that he has ascended, in that he is king of all the earth. He reigns, and he's highly exalted. And so it's especially in that second half of the psalm, when we see God's glory, that it should produce a worshipful response in us. When I, if I see God as he really is, as I get ready to go worship this morning, I'm going to look to him, verse 5. In other words, I'm going to say, God, I'm going to trust that you know the way. 
I may think I've got a pretty good plan worked out in my life, but I, I'm going to trust that you know. Number two, we sing to him. There's more than one application we can make to that, verse, verse 6 and 7. But let me pause for a second to say this. You may have a beautiful voice. You may not. Either way, as the song leader says, let us sing. Um, I don't see anywhere, help me if you can find a passage that tells us uh, that we are to speak to one another if we have a lovely voice. What does he say? He leaves that part out, right? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What is the purpose of singing in worship? Or you, that you think that's the case? It's to let other people know how beautiful you sound. To know that you have the strong, you have the best tenor, alto, soprano, and bass in the auditorium. That's what, it, that's what singing's for in worship. Have we ever told ourselves that? I can't sing like other people. First of all, where's God, what's God listening for? Our hearts. And we sometimes make a joke about this, but I, don't, I don't think it's a good joke. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Sing. Open your mouth in song. Because God has singing designed for you to teach and admonish to say, look, you know, if the name of the Savior is precious to you, will you not tell it today? We talked about that last week. Sometimes I need correction. Lead me to some soul today to speak to the commitment that we need to have. So will you give thought to the fact that it doesn't matter how, how you sound? I, I've known some of the, my favorite folks to sing near. I have a buddy. His name's Keith Kasargent. Most tone-deaf guy I know. And he, he said I made a... By the way, he said this is my argument against miking singers in auditorium. He said nobody's ever come up to me and asked me to take a mic and to sing because it's not about that. It's about maybe trying to make it sound better for us. That's not what singing's about. And so I love the fact that he'll sing, he'll bellow. I mean, I don't think he's being obnoxious, but you can hear Keith when he's in the assembly. And I think that's by design. God wants us to speak, to sing. They chanted in the early church. I don't know if you can chant off, tone, off key or not. I'm not sure. But it doesn't matter. We need to be speaking to one another. Number two, three, when we see God's glory, we bow before him, verse 7. We don't necessarily have to do that physically, but we do that in heart. We acknowledge him, verse 8. And we assemble before him, verse 9. I also just want to look at the emotion that's involved in worship. God wants our worship to have emotion there should be joy in our worship, verse 1. There should be fear in our worship, verse 2. There should be awe in our worship. Awe, uh, just um, a, a sense of seeing how awesome God is, verse 3. And there should be praise, verse 6 and 7. It is our privilege to come before the great I Am, to approach His holy throne, verse 8. And so what God wants us to do is to bring a heart and a mind ready to exalt such a mighty God. If we see him, we understand him for who he is, then we're going to do all that we can to give him glory. All right? We'll uh, stop at Psalm 47, uh, but let's uh, close with a word of prayer. Our God, we are mindful of how wonderful it is every Lord's Day to come into your presence and worship you. Father, we pray that our, our picture of you will never be too small, but that we will understand just how awesome and magnificent you are. 
Father, we know we have about 10, 15 minutes between now and the start of worship, and we want to encourage each other, and we want to visit and to fellowship with one another. We pray that you'll help us to remember, before we formally enter into that period of worship this morning, to take a moment or two to clean our hearts of everything else, to think about your, your grandeur and your goodness and your grace and all the blessings that you pour into our life and how we need you if we're going to bring to you what will be pleasing in your sight in worship today. And help us to be mindful as we interact with one another that we are carrying around those hidden cares and help us to be compassionate and patient and loving with one another today and always. In Jesus' name, amen.